the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And uh, slightly different tonight in that we've been talking about COVID-19 for months now. But uh, other things are still going on in the world, and other things are out there that can hurt us beside COVID-19. And one of those is what we do every day, usually three times a day, and maybe even snacking in between, and that's eating food. Uh, in, in my world, my expert, my world expert in uh, contaminated foods and uh, food products is an attorney from Seattle, Washington named Bill Marler, who's an expert, and is, he's just so into food problems and his experience is so extensive. I can think of no one better to tell us about the dangers of tainted food and foodborne illnesses than, than Bill Marler. And he's with us tonight to join us in, in these next two segments. Bill, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Nick. Thank you. I know we worked on a case or two over the years, and uh, the whole idea of foodborne illness is, is so so important to us because we're so vulnerable. We trust our food supply. We trust everything we put into our mouth and we buy it either at a restaurant or we buy it off the shelves of a store. Um, and your specialty is that. You Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started you know, years ago into the contaminated food lawsuit business, I suppose? Sure. Uh, well, first, let's you know put it a little bit in context. There's 48 million Americans uh, get a foodborne illness every year. Um, about 125,000 are hospitalized, and there's about between three and 4,000 deaths. So it's a it's a it's a big deal. Um, but I first started uh, in 1993. There was a sort of the infamous uh, Jack in the Box E. coli outbreak that sickened uh, over 600 people. Uh, put about uh, 75 children on acute kidney failure, and there were four children who died. And that was the first time that I was involved. And really, since then, uh, that's all I've done with my career for the last, you know, 27 plus years. Now, when you say you've done that as an attorney, you've also been just doing uh, public good by appearing on different uh, news shows, different networks, and even in Congress, from what I recall. Uh, I remember you doing stories on CNN and other news channels, and uh, actually being an advocate for safe food in, in Congress uh, in, in doing those things. How dangerous yeah, are we, we still with our food? Well, there's. let me tell you it's it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, 48 million sounds like a lot, and it is. Uh, most of those people uh, get the norovirus in food, and that's where you know where people go. Oh, I ate something bad, and I'm sick within 24 hours. Um, you know, that's certainly a, a problem. But what we've really seen, we've seen some really amazing um, changes to the good. 
um, from say 1993 to about 2000, about 90% of the cases that I dealt with were E. coli cases linked to hamburger. And that's fairly close to zero now. And that's really because consumers, industry, and government really came together, uh, you know, to you know force the industry, you know, to change its behaviors. Um, you know, we're still seeing, unfortunately, problems with fresh fruits and vegetables, much more difficult to deal with. Uh, but uh, there, there are, um, you know, small. Uh, victories, and I think we have to be happy for some of those. When we talk about uh, neurovirus, uh, which is very similar to its its rapid spread, similar to the mm -hmm. coronavirus that we're looking at now, uh, the neurovirus, was that able to be uh, conveyed and uh, infecting people by food? And if so, do we have the same thing with the coronavirus? Well, uh, neurovirus uh, can be aerosolized by vomit, uh, but it's, it's a human virus um, that is, uh, you know, common in humans. Uh, it can be spread by food. Uh, there are no reported uh, coronavirus cases that have been linked to food consumption. There have been two uh, reports that haven't been confirmed out of China where they thought for a while that salmon from Norway might contain the coronavirus, uh, maybe on the packaging. And then mm -hmm. recently there was no, uh, coronavirus found uh, on the packaging of some chicken from Brazil in China. This, you know, some of this is still not corroborated. Um, but what we really know about coronavirus is that it is, you know, airborne spread. Um, there are solid reports of uh, coronavirus being spread in a restaurant environment, either directly between patrons or through the uh, the uh, uh, ventilation systems. So, um, again, that, you know that's why you know staying outdoors, wearing a mask, and not congregating closely with people is the best way to avoid uh, coronavirus at this time. As you're talking about the, the passage of viruses uh, in restaurants, I recall a situation that I had with my family, oh my, maybe five, ten years ago, somewhere in that time frame, where a server brought out a big tray full of food that was ordered, and the server just looked ill, puffy face, mm -hmm. uh, almost mm -hmm. runny. And um, within four days after we th had that meal, all of us at the table ended up with a bad case of the flu, yeah. which right. it wasn't wasn't coronavirus. But the thought is, is that safety, personal safety, is so important because right. all the stuff is still going around. Yeah, not I, I, you know, not to play doctor here, but I, that probably was, you know, the norovirus, um, and that's really why, um, you know, pay, uh, customers, you know, uh, really. Um, need to pay attention to their surroundings when they go to a restaurant and why restaurateurs, you know, really need to have a sick leave policy that if people are ill, you know, they shouldn't be at work. And that's true for people who are, have a diarrheal illness like norovirus or salmonella. Uh, it's also true uh, with respect to, you know, COVID-19. Um, you know, we, we're not quite there for rapid tests yet, but 
you know, the one thing restaurateurs don't want to do is have a positive COVID test in a restaurant. It's going to impact sales. It's not a good thing. Uh, that's um, th that's so true. But I like what you said about the hamburger, the idea of hamburger back in the 90s being mm -hmm. a, a hot spot for E. coli infections and the fact that everyone seems to have gotten a lot smarter with that and we're now down to mm -hmm. like zero. Uh, there's a thing going on with onions now, uh, right. which is related two, to another. What do we have there? Right. We have two fairly significant outbreaks going on somewhat simultaneously. One is a salmonella outbreak linked to red onions grown in California, and the other is a cyclospora outbreak linked to bagged salads. It appears that the water... Uh, was contaminated where the lettuce was grown in Florida. So the two um, outbreaks, salmonella is a uh, enteric uh, pathogen, bacteria. Uh, cyclospora is actually a, uh, a protozoan, it's a, and it's a, it's a little live creature. Uh, it's very hard, difficult to see with a microscope. It's actually very difficult to test for. Um, and it's been a growing problem in the United States, not just because of imports, but because, you know, the perception of, of global warming has allowed a, uh, a pathogen like cyclospora to get a toehold in the United States, where decades ago it used to be a South American problem primarily. I recall some uh, years ago you and I worked on a spinach case. And it had to do with uh, spinach being contaminated with E. coli, I believe. And yep. um, we're going to take a break here in a, in a moment, but just a little of the background on the case. And so people understand what goes into litigation is that we're here in Ohio. And I know working with your office, you had to go all the way down to the actual field where the spinach was actually being raised and actually got information concerning the surrounding agricultural lands. I think there was a hog farm nearby that uh, had water runoff going into the uh, spinach field. Uh, that actually was the source of the contaminated spinach that was getting out and about. The The fact that um, these contaminations back years ago were happening maybe more frequently, it sounds like overall things have been maybe better regulated better watch, uh, do you think? Yeah, I mean, we, uh, in 2010, uh, Congress passed uh, the Food Safety Modernization Act. The President Obama signed it in law, and it's been slowly rolling out. Uh, and even uh, under the Trump administration, you know, they've implemented, you know, uh, many of the, the regulations. Um, and we're starting to see, you know, a, a Hopefully, a, a, a good trend in uh, leafy greens, um, you know, spinach. We haven't had an outbreak uh, for the last decade, but unfortunately, we've had, you know, numerous outbreaks linked to leafy greens, primarily bag product. But, but uh, I think things well, let's, are let's hold, let's hold trending that one in question. the right way. Sure. Let's, let's take a short break. And we'll be back. We're talking to attorney Bill Marler from Seattle, Washington an expert on contaminated foods and foodborne illnesses. Uh, and that stuff is still out there and still something we should be watching for. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back after these words. 
don't go away. Matt Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Seattle attorney Bill Marler about foodborne illnesses and the fact that even though we're talking about COVID-19 and we're obsessed with that problem, it doesn't free us from being watchful about other problems. So, Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Nick. You know, as as we're talking about uh, the idea of uh, the leafy greens, we were talking about that before the break. And uh, I interrupted you. Uh, what what were oh, you not, going to say? It's, uh, not at all. I tend to. Uh, I'm a. Uh, I, I know one thing, and that's <laughs> this area of the law. And and I so I wind Food up talking pathogens. too much sometimes. And so, oh, never, uh, never. You know the. You're absolutely correct. The the uh, spinach outbreak uh, in 2006 was, you know, really a devastating outbreak. There were 210 people sick. Five people died, uh, but a number of people, including your client, uh, developed acute kidney failure or hemolytic uremic syndrome, uh, which is a devastating uh, uh, disease. Um, it, uh, it attacks the kidneys, it attacks the brain, it attacks the liver, it attacks the pancreas, and it can cause you know, life-altering problems. Um, you know, from that outbreak, um, really um, was a, the push for the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was really to try to implement many of the uh, changes that were made in the meat industry to make those into the leafy green industry. Uh, and as it took a decade to see positive change in the meat industry and a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of sick people in litigation, um, you know, we're starting to see that same change in the industry, the same change in the government and the push by consumers. So my hope is, you know, a year from now, a few years from now, you and I will be talking about the same positive experience we had with hamburger, getting E. coli out of it. Hopefully we'll see the same thing happening with uh, getting E. coli out of leafy greens. I remember one time you said, uh, I don't know whether it was to me or to a news agency or someone, about the dangers of food and how this is uh, sort of the focus of your law business and nothing would make you happier than to put you out of business (laughs) if there were no more problems. You you turned to some other. I wrote wrote an op-ed in 2002 um, when we had another uh, E. coli outbreak uh, that was really devastating in in the Midwest. And uh, uh, it was just, I sort of had it, you know, I'd sort of felt like we had been litigating for, you know, eight or nine years. And, um, you know, I really felt that the meat industry and, you know, government needed to step up and do the right thing. And, you know, really, you know, not to say that that was the defining reason why they did it to put me out of business, but, um, I did, uh, get to speak at a, uh, large, uh, meat uh, convention, the National Meat Association. I did uh, for the 25th anniversary of the Jack in the Box case, and uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, they had that tape of me saying, put me out of business. So 
um, it, oh, you know, it I think it it did have it did have the it did have a good effect. So. Well, well, it did. I mean, we look at lawyering generally, and uh, the fact that out of uh, tragedy many times comes safety concerns and safety modernizations that save lives. And we'll never know what lives were saved, but uh, you know, yep. the, the safer people get, the less jobs lawyers have to do. I agree. Completely agree. I think it's a general thought. Well, what about people now who are out there? As I mentioned, uh, everyone's obsessed with COVID-19 because it is a big thing. It's a, it's a very dangerous virus. It's still mm -hmm. out there. There's still no virus. But uh, these other things uh, are still out there. We have other threats facing us. What precautions can we make either between restaurants or grocery mm -hmm. shopping that we should be aware of on a regular basis? That, that's a great, I think that's a great question, uh, you know, Nick. And, you know, from my perspective, um, you know, it's, it's some real basic stuff, you know, uh, keeping hot things hot and cold things cold, you know, washing your fruits and vegetables well when you purchase them. Um, and, you know, cooking meat thoroughly, um, you know, paying attention to, you know, the, the having different cutting boards for meat and for fresh fruits and vegetables, you know, look out for cross-contamination. Um, you know, and that's, that's true in a home and that's true at a restaurant. And, um, you know, we, uh, you know, sometimes I think we take uh, it for granted that, uh, you know, washing your hands, um, you know, uh, you know, glove use, uh, hand washing, mask use has, has been used in uh, hairnet use, has been used in the food industry to help prevent illnesses for, you know, for decades. And, you know, we're now, you know, using masks and washing hands and using social distancing uh, to prevent the spread of COVID. Some of those things will help prevent the spread of foodborne disease. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see post-COVID uh, to look back and to see what things we were doing to combat COVID that also may have had a positive impact on food safety. Well, COVID certainly got our attention, and I think people are all aware of what they should be doing, and if they do it, they should be healthier for it. Uh, a, a couple of things that you mentioned I'm listening to, washing vegetables. Uh, some people were using soap to wash vegetables, and I heard that's probably not a good idea. No, no. It's, you know, the, the thing is, is just, you know, washing them in your sink under running water. Um, you know, the, the whole idea is if there is some contaminants, some bacteria on those leafy greens, you know, knocking off as much of it as you can, you know, your body, you know, can combat, uh, you know, some level of bacteria. That's how we're, we're designed. Uh, it, it's a problem when it's, there's too much bacteria uh, on products. That's when we get sick. So, you know, washing fruits and vegetables, um, you know, washing your hands, uh, and, you know, cooking things, cooking things will always solve the problem. So, uh, so you know, thoroughly cooking, you know, vegetables and thoroughly cooking um, uh, meats is always a good thing. I just had a quick question before we move on. Sure. What's a good temperature to cook your meat to if you're using a thermometer? <laughs> just to uh, clear it's, this up. Yeah, it's uh, one, 165. Uh, 
for chicken, 155 for hamburger, and 145 for pork. I thought you would know. Very good. That's that's good to know. So you get between one. If you cook everything to 165, you should be okay. You're good in good shape. Or if you good to go. Okay. Uh, you cook it cook it like I do at my house, which is uh, you know burnt. Uh, I'm I'm well known oh. at my family for overcooking food. <laughs> so, oh my I think understandable. My think about understand. It's understandable under the circumstances. Now, if somebody comes down with like hemolytic uremic syndrome, kidney failure because of E. coli suspected, or there, there's an outbreak in the news and you, you develop one of these illnesses, uh, as an individual, what should you do? I assume you should save the product if you think you know what it is. Pay attention um, to what's going on in the news. Is that a good idea? Yeah. Most, most of the time, you know, the product that you think it was is not the product uh, for E. coli, the incubation period is, you know, one to 10 days with most people getting sick three to four days after they ingest it. So it's highly unlikely that you'll have the product around. Uh, it, I, most people think it was the last thing they ate that made them sick. And that's generally always not the case. So uh, the, if you have a foodborne disease, the best thing to do is go to the doctor, get a stool culture. Uh, that'll tell the doctor and it'll tell you what pathogen it is. All of these pathogens are now reportable to public health, although it's been a bit slow because of COVID, but they're all reportable and the public health entities have a responsibility to try to figure out what's causing your illness. So the best thing to do is, you know, uh, is to, you know, go to the doctor, get a stool culture and be in communication with your public health entity. Well, we hope people don't get sick from that. Uh, I think everybody mm -hmm. is, as I mentioned several times, so keyed up about their health now. And maybe right. the the takeaway here will be that we're all just overall safer than we were before with washing hands and uh, yep. trying to stay clean. Yep, so, I agree. I agree. Well, excellent, excellent. Well, in any event, uh, Bill Marler, thank you so very much for sharing with us tonight uh, the, the other hazards of life we're all living. But hopefully things are getting better in that department. Thank you for joining My us. My pleasure, Nick. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we're going to take another break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking in the next two segments about uh, drugs in the state of Ohio and, and what some people are doing to help correct the problem and shut down the problems we're having with that. And uh, with us tonight uh, talking about healing community studies from The Ohio State University is Dr. Darcy Friedman. Dr. Friedman, thank you for joining us. Hi there. Thank you. Hi, can you tell us a little bit about your project and the study? Yes, so the Ohio Healing Community Study is a statewide study that has the goal of reducing uh, opioid overdose deaths by 40% in three years. This is a, it actually is a national study, so Ohio is one of four states in the study. The other states include Kentucky, New York, and um, Massachusetts. 
How long has this program been uh, available? So our study was funded a little bit over a year ago, and we started to begin the work of the study working directly in the communities in um, late 2019 and, you know, really more intensely working in the communities starting in January of this year. So we're, we're fairly new, although we're very busy in the work that we're doing, um, including some great work that's happening right here in Cuyahoga County um, that's working directly in partnership with a number of community organizations um, to, to implement the study overall. Now, the, the impetus for the whole program, I'm thinking going back several years, is that the op opioid problem we've been having here in, in Ohio has been that a lot of abuse, a lot of overdoses, a lot of overdose deaths were occurring. Uh, is that sort of, sort of the reason why we have this program going on? Yeah, so, you know, the reason why we did this study and why it's funded by the National Institute of alcohol and drug abuse, so it's a nationally funded study, is because the opioid crisis has been here and it's not going away. And while we've made some progress in terms of reducing overdose death, um, it's really been in only a few limited geographic areas and populations. And so the, the focus of this study is to think about what can we do differently, um, not just working to fund services, but to implement a community change process for substance misuse and to um, increase the use of data to guide the decisions. And then I think really importantly is increasing community engagement in that process of change. Now, it, it seems back in the days, uh, and I'm talking about the days like they're ancient, but maybe two years ago, we were hearing a lot about uh, people who normally are not addicted to heroin, say, that were converting over from prescription narcotics over to heroin. And we were looking at a lot of overdoses and deaths from people who you wouldn't expect to uh, be involved in that kind of thing. Is that still going on? So I think I'd like to turn it over to my colleague and partner, Beth, who can go ahead and tell you more about what's happening um, on the ground in terms of you know drug use behaviors in our community. Oh, very thank good. You. So we have Beth, uh, Beth Zilo de Jesus. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, um, thanks, Dar uh, Darcy. I'm happy to answer that. Um, so we've had an, a nonstop evolving crisis here in Cuyahoga County. The epidemic has uh, just continued to evolve, and every time we meet it where it's at, it changes again. So it started with overprescribing. When um, the crackdown on pills began to happen for prescribing, people moved to the street and purchased illicit pills. When the crackdown continued, those became much harder to get and much more expensive. And people were offering then heroin as a cheaper alternative with the same effect. So people went from misusing prescriptions to moving on to heroin because they had a chronic illness. Uh, they had moved into addiction where their brain felt it needed this substance to continue to function. When people were primarily on heroin, we saw a big a spike in death. 
Then fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, came onto our scene, and we saw a huge jump by more than 300 deaths. The following year, carfentanil, which is an even deadlier, uh, like two grains of salt, um, is deadly. Of carfentanil hit the scene, and that killed even more. And we finally went down. And then now COVID, we are back up, and our numbers are more significant. So. It has definitely been evolving, and we have been meeting it where it's at since the beginning and trying to combat what's happening while planning for the future so we can stop the progression. Mm -hmm. well, well, tell me, how, how does COVID play into this? Because it's a different mechanism. It's a virus. It's a pandemic. Our lives are all being changed. How is that playing out with regard to the, the people who are involved with uh, the opioids? Sure. So we already had this epidemic going on and now we have a pandemic on top of it. So what happened when everything shut down is the supply access on the street lessened and people have built, people who have a substance use disorder build tolerances. So they may not have been able to access the drugs that they normally do. With that, in the beginning of the epidemic in March and April, we saw a decrease in overdose deaths. Then we hit May. Started to reopen, the supply was back on the street, people had lost some of their tolerance, began to use again, were using new substances that their bodies could not handle, and we saw ODs jump up to 52 in May. The idea of COVID and the availability of street drugs, and we're talking, I think, primarily heroin, sometimes with fentanyl. Uh, is that increasing crime on the streets? Is, sorry, and I'm not talking about possession and distribution crimes, but more like uh, property crimes for purposes of uh, stealing and converting that into cash to buy to buy more drugs. Well, first I will say that there is hardly any heroin on our streets anymore. Almost everything is straight fentanyl now. Um, and secondly, I don't have the law enforcement data to, to answer that. Um, directly, but I can say that we do know that people are often arrested for um, petty theft, burglary related to um, trying to get funding for drugs. I can't give you the data from COVID, though, because I just don't have it. I, I recall hearing a story, oh, must be about a year or so, where there was a, uh, a couple, a suburban couple, the husband was an airline pilot and the wife, you know, was you know, living a what we would consider a normal life, not not sort of a skid row type person, but we had ordinary people who were dying of overdoses. Has that changed the socioeconomic group of people who are abusing and dying? Are are we seeing any changes over the past year? Well, first, I'd like to say that substance use disorder doesn't have any barriers. It doesn't care how wealthy you are or aren't. It doesn't care um, if you are actively working or you don't work, um, substance use disorders can happen to anyone, regardless of race, gender, economic status. It, it just doesn't have any barriers. So that's something we try to address is stigma. When we uh -huh. saw a shift in demographics is when we started to see fentanyl show up in other drugs such as cocaine. Then we saw a shift from deaths and ODs in outer ring white suburbs to inner city and inner ring suburbs. 
where now people were expecting to take cocaine or have crack, which they may have had a history of use or were just using maybe um, every once in a while. But now it has fentanyl and fentanyl is deadly and they're used to using stimulants and have no tolerance for an opioid and then have have died. And so we saw overdose deaths in the African community, African-American community in the last three years jump by almost 30%. And so we had to adjust to address those efforts as well. How, how do we engage with local communities? How are you doing that? And we have about uh, a minute, we, then we're going to take a break, uh, and then we'll, we'll be back talking about what's, what's going on with the opioid crisis. But anyway, with engagement. So we. Well, I, I tell you, we're, we're almost out of time for this segment. Let me do. Okay. Let's let's hold that question for the next segment. But okay. uh, with regard to fentanyl and the opioids that are killing people, we're glad you're out there to basically help us understand what the problem is, maybe make some impact, and seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate on WHK, and we're talking about healing community study out of Ohio State University. We're talking about what's going on to fight this epidemic that we're having with regard to illegal drugs. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. segment of the advocate for tonight and uh, we're talking about the healing community study dealing with opioids and control of opioids and improving our situation and uh, we're talking to dr. Darcy Friedman uh, dr. Friedman this is a collaborative program uh, who all are the partners that you have in it yes so our project is housed um, out of the or at Ohio State University is the lead university but given the, the depth of the project and the need for engagement across many, um, many groups and many organizations, um, it includes a number of other university partners. So, for example, I'm a faculty member at Case Western Reserve University, University of Cincinnati, Ohio University, uh, University of Toledo. These are all partners on the project as well as the state. Um, we have, um, you know, a wide net of partners that are working together to make this happen. Now, and, as you're at the university level uh, working these problems, how do you engage with local communities? And do you work with local law enforcement or other uh, agencies within local communities? Yes. So the, the model that's used in this study, in the Healing Community Study for Change, is to partner directly with the local uh, opioid coalition in each of the counties that we're working in. And so as we're working with those coalitions, um, many of them, they already were in existence and they include a diverse group of people on their, on their coalition. So law enforcement, uh, social services, public health, education, economics, I mean, uh, recovery world. They already had representation. In some cases, they may have expanded slightly for the project. 
But I do want to um, just kind of turning back to the earlier conversation about, you know, what is the epidemic in our community and, and that it's a real problem. But I think the, the, the focus of the healing community study is to say, how do we bring some of the solutions that we know do work um, more widely available in the community? And so in our project, we're focusing in on four evidence-based solutions including naloxone, distribution, medication for opioid use disorder, safe prescribing practices, and then within each of those, trying to focus on some of those vulnerable populations that Beth was talking about earlier. The uh, idea of working with the local communities, uh, and you've been doing this for about a year, how are the trends coming? Do you, do you feel you're making progress? So I think Beth and Sarah, do you guys want to share a little bit about um, some of the decisions that have been made to increase um, evidence-based practices in our county around uh, reducing opioid fatality rates? And I, I think we uh, lost Sarah. I think we have Ann Blackman on the line now. Ann, are you with us? Yes, I'm with you. Hi. So Ann, do you yes, want to uh, share go ahead. Um, what? One of the one of the um, interventions that you guys have selected to do here in Cuyahoga County. Okay, one of the strategies that we're working on in Cuyahoga County to reduce <laughs> opioid yeah. overdose deaths. Yeah. So one of the strategies that we're currently working on is we're talking about um, uh, introducing or increasing the access to naloxone and methadone clinics and detox facilities. So um, just talking to one of the Talking to people from our subcommittee, we know that a lot of this is already happening in Cuyahoga County, but just seeing, since it is, like uh, Dr. Friedman had said, it's working well, just seeing, could we increase this to help um, reduce opioid overdose deaths? Okay, very good. I, I hope uh, we're, we're taking care of that um, problem with a little bit of a feedback there. But uh, what, what are the plans coming up for the next year with your program, and what, it, what goals do you hope to accomplish? So um, the study is oh, – oh, I was go just going to say the study is moving into the phase of a lot of decisions have been made over the past six months, um, looking at how do we align the interventions to what the data tell us is the trend of the epidemic, as well as what the community has expressed interest in implementing. And so those decisions are being made, like the one that Ann just mentioned. And then we're now moving into the implementation phase. And um, and Beth, you might be able to share a bit more about what implement, implementation might look like in our county over the next 6 to 12 months. Sure. So uh, I actually work at the Adams Board of Cuyahoga County, the Alcohol, Drug Addiction, and Mental Health Services Board. We're responsible for planning, funding, and monitoring all public mental health and addiction treatment services. Um, and we co-chair the Cuyahoga County Opiate Task Force with the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. So we have been working on strategies to meet this epidemic where it is. So what the suggestions that come in through healing communities they add to what work we're already doing. So they're helping us implement getting our treatment providers to have naloxone when people discharge. Um, 
but there's that's not the only thing going on. They're, they're another extension of the community collaboration that we have with law enforcement, with hospitals, um, with incredible community partners. We even do fentanyl test strip distribution in barber shops and um, local stores. So our community collaboration in Cuyahoga County is immense. It's huge, and people are very willing to work together to tackle this epidemic. Um, Healing Communities is a wonderful addition to that and is helping us identify and move forward with some of the things that we have not been able to get to because we've been so busy. Do we, do we think that the COVID-19 problem is going to continue to be a problem or have some type of effect upon what's going on with opioid addiction? So we have a little bit of good news there. We fund 65-plus providers who take care of people. Um, in the beginning, we saw our intake decline, like people coming in for treatment. But in July, that has started to really pick up. Most people were afraid to come in because they were afraid of congregate settings or um, catching coronavirus, and that has since lessened, and people are coming in for treatment. Um, the good news is that the people who were already engaged in programming are not relapsing. Our relapse rates are very steady. They are not jumping up. Um, our no-show rate, which is the number of people who keep their appointments, is very low because we move to telehealth, and it's easier. The Barriers about transportation are gone. People can connect via phone and keep their appointments. So we're seeing people sustain in treatment, which is good news. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to attack this at all angles and remember that this is a chronic illness and people need treatment. And people who, who receive treatment and remain on treatment recover. And recovery changes our whole community. And that is something we always try to support. Well, very, very good. I have a question concerning uh, the use of Narcan by uh, EMTs and police departments. Is that working for things other than just heroin overdose overdoses? Um, it does work. It's an opioid reversal. Um, it depends on how much of the substance the person has had and how timely the naloxone is distributed. Um, so it's what's called a harm reduction effort, and we have several of those here, and we do support that. Um, so it, it's not going to save everybody, but it saves so many people when used immediately, which is why we absolutely want and encourage everyone to carry naloxone. So it does have effect and it's still being used. Well, well, well very good. Well, in, in any event, uh, I, I apologize for any of the feedback issues. I know we've had some technical issues tonight, but I hope everyone heard about Healing Communities Study and what it's doing to help make life better for everyone who's being affected by opioid problems here in, in the state of Ohio. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Darcy Friedman, uh, Beth uh, Zeitlow de Jesus, Sarah Roberts, and Ann Blackman. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea.